Leviticus chapter 14, where we left off last time. We went last time in chapter 14 down as far as verse 7, and we kind of left off in the midst of a very interesting section here in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, uh, really two of the longest uh, chapters that we have in the Bible, um, and more than that, uh, lengthy chapters and even longer than any ancient document regarding the uh, diagnosis and the treatment and how to handle infectious type diseases if they would exist in that day. Even among secular ancient uh, documents here in the Word of God, God gives more detail, more description for how they were to handle these things. Again, because of God's love for His people because of his concern for their welfare, and not just God's love and concern for the individual, but realizing how the lives of many individuals collectively interacting among each other as a community has a tremendous then impact and influence upon the whole. And, and we see glimmers of the heart of God in this. And specifically, as we were looking at chapters 13 and 14, chapter 13 deals really with a diagnosis of how to determine if there was some type of an infectious skin disease. It seems specifically um, leprosy, no doubt, being one of the primary things focused in on. It seems that it wasn't limited to that. There were other things as well. But predominantly, God was addressing what we know and refer to Hansen's disease today or leprosy. We see many lepers uh, in the time of Jesus' day and Jesus healing them. But chapter 13 gives to the high priest, and remember it was the role of the high priest, instructions how they were to inspect different conditions, sores or ulcers or things that would begin to arise, rash-like areas on the skin of a particular individual. They were to go to the priest and the priest was to examine them to determine whether or not indeed it was leprosy and they needed to be isolated and separated, kind of quarantined from the rest of Israel or whether or not it was just some other condition, uh, maybe a psoriasis or uh, something else that wasn't necessarily uh, going to be an infectious thing or a contagious thing and it was the job of the high priest to make that diagnosis and determination regarding the person's condition even as we said Jesus uh, ultimately as our great high priest the Bible tells us is the one who makes the ultimate determination regarding our spiritual condition uh, and really, I can't accurately diagnose myself. Quite honestly, the Bible tells me my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So a lot of times we focus on the fact that our hearts are desperately wicked. But the Bible says even before that, it says our hearts are deceitful above all things, which is an even greater problem because not only is my heart uh, desperately wicked, but above that even my heart is deceitful, which indicates I don't even realize how desperately wicked my heart is. So I can't even make an accurate diagnosis of myself. Often I think I'm better than I am or doing better than I am. Or sometimes we can be our own worst critic and we think we're way worse than we are and, and God's looking at us and, and extending grace and compassion when we're being much harder on ourselves regarding a situation that's going on in our lives. And so the Lord makes that determination. And this day, again, symbolically, many of these things the high priest would look at and like a, a health uh, a professional, he would diagnose the person's condition we said, remember, that leprosy in the Bible many a times, most often, is used as a picture and a type of sin. Certainly it was a, a literal condition, but by way of typology and symbolically, leprosy is a very strong type and picture of sin. Because in the same way, leprosy is an incurable disease. It's humanly incurable. There's nothing humanly can be done to resolve it. We can arrest its condition through modern medicine, but we can't cure it. In the same way, sin is a terminal condition. It's a spiritual disease that we can't resolve. I can't resolve my problem with sin. Only God miraculously can deal with my sin if I come to Jesus Christ and let him bring about forgiveness and, and deal with that spiritual condition. Leprosy attacks the nervous system, so it, it deadens the pain sensation. It makes a person numb and takes away their feeling, and, and sin has that effect upon a person's life. It destroys their ability to have a proper sense uh, of feeling regarding you know, their, their mind, their senses. A person's understanding becomes deadened and numbed and they just continue to damage and destroy themselves 
because of the effects of sin in their life. And, and, and leprosy, remember, it starts small and it spreads throughout the body. In the same way sin, it always starts with small concessions and small compromises, but it always spreads and it always ultimately corrupts completely. Leprosy caused isolation and separation and sin causes isolation and separation. And we talked about these parallels and pictures as we went through and saw how they were to be diagnosed if they had this physical condition. And then chapter 14, as we began it together last time, then deals with how to treat a person if indeed miraculously they were healed from their leprous condition. And it would have to be a miracle. So for many, many years, understand, these things were written. How do you deal with a man if he's cleansed of leprosy? And yet these things were never implemented. They were never utilized because no one was ever healed until the time that Jesus came and Jesus began to more frequently heal those who had leprous conditions as an indication that he was God. And he was doing miracles because God was in the flesh among them. And no doubt as he would do that and then say, hey, go to the priest and offer the sacrifices and go through the protocol of the cleansing of a leper as they were going back. And Annas and Caiaphas and the priest were saying, what? You, you're healed of leprosy? And, and they were having to find these chapters in Leviticus that were probably dust covered because they weren't used very often, but also having to face the fact that the Messiah was indeed in their midst. Now, let's just read chapter 14, verse 1 to 7. We talked about it last week, but just to get a running start into where we're continuing to move on, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This, is the, this shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. If he was miraculously healed and cured, again, he couldn't cleanse himself, but in the day that if he was cured miraculously by God, this is what he was to do in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought... To the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall examine him. And if indeed the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall command him to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet, which again is a reddish color and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running or living water, the idea is. And as for the living bird, the other one, he shall then take it, the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop, and dip then in the living bird into that blood of the bird that had been killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle it then seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy. And he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. So there was this protocol that they were to go through in the day of the cleansing ceremony of the leper if someone had been miraculously touched by God. And as we talked about last week, as we look at some of these things here in verses 5, 6, and 7, very picturesque, no doubt, of Christ in the ways, again, uh, that the bird was the first bird to be killed in an earthen vessel, even as Jesus came to this uh, planet in, in an earthen vessel. He took a human body. And in that earthen vessel, he was put to death. He was killed. He was sacrificed for our sins so that we might be healed, as it were, from our sinful, leprous condition that's terminally destroying every one of us because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that living bird that then, remember, was dipped covered in the blood and water which was mingled together like the blood and the water that issued from the side of Christ when he was pierced on the cross. And then that living bird set free as they would watch it fly and ascend up into the heaven, a picture of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ back to the right hand of the Father. And just a, a very symbolic way as they were just observing this protocol, the pictures here as God's looking down upon that, no doubt thinking, about the ultimate sacrifice of his son Jesus that would take away our spiritual leprosy and our sinful condition. Well, the ceremony goes on of cleansing in verse 8 by saying, And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, so shave his head, shave his eyebrows, you know, every place where there is bodily hair, he was to shave himself completely clean and take a, a, a total bath, shall wash himself in water that he may be clean. And after that, he shall come into the camp and shall stay outside his tent 
seven days. So for the first week or so, again, just to verify that this was indeed a complete cleansing, again, using precaution, he was finally able to wash, to take off his torn garments, which would identify him as a leper, as he was in his time of isolation and complete loneliness, separated from his family and his loved ones. He was to shave himself completely. So again, looking in many ways, almost, you know, washed and completely shaved like a cue ball, kind of almost looked like a brand new baby. But in a sense, was that not the picture? No doubt maybe on God's heart that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things pass away and all things become new. And uh, th that we are born again when we come to Jesus Christ. He cleanses us. He washes us. Our old garments of filth and stain are taken away and we're clean. We begin again fresh and brand new as a brand new life in Christ. God gives us that birth and new beginning when we accept Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but then on the seventh day after that week, he shall again shave off all the hair of his head. So he had to re-shave everything again that grew back. His beard and his eyebrows, and that always makes you look quite interesting. And he shall wash his clothes again and wash his body in water and he shall be clean. So again, there was the shaving of the hair and there was a consistency in those first week there of washing. And no doubt, I think this is important to see as well, because as we've talked about before, whenever we see water in the Old Testament used in the sense of washing, it's a picture of the word of God. When we see water used in the sense of drinking to quench the thirst, that usually is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit, that he quenches our thirst. Jesus said, out of our innermost being shall gush forth rivers of living water. He told the woman at the Samaritan, well, if you would have asked of me, I would have given you living water to drink. So when it's water being drank or drunk, whatever the proper English is there, I don't know, uh, that's picturing the, the work of the Spirit. But when we see water used for washing, it's a picture of the washing of the water of the word. That as we wash filth off of our bodies and germs and things which contaminate us in the same way, Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure but by living according to your word? The word of God has a washing effect. Ephesians 5 says that we're to wash in the water of the word. And so here, as he begins his new life, his cleansed brand new life right away God says you need to be washed you need to let the word of God in the same way for us when we first come to Christ there is nothing more important when somebody first comes to Christ and that leprous condition is, re is resolved and taken away and God says okay you're forgiven you're clean you're brand new but your mind and your inner person is really contaminated still so I've got to renew your mind and I need to wash you of wrong ideas and wrong attitudes and so important and so essential to that brand new life as a baby Christian when we first start out in that new life experience is that we're regularly washing in the word, taking in the word of God, letting it cleanse us and renew our mindset and change our attitudes and such a critical thing even as they would wash as a part of the ceremony here. Verse 10, and then on the eighth day, he shall take two male lambs without blemish. Again, the sacrifice is always without blemishes. One ewe lamb of the first year without a blemish. Three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour uh, mixed with oil as a grain offering and a log of oil. And that's a measurement of oil. The idea is there. And the priest who makes him clean shall present the man who is to be made clean. Again, I like this. Not only does the priest participate in the ceremony of the cleansing, but there's also this, this presentation. This man is clean. There's the declaration of the priest. This man is clean. He's restored. He's a different man. And, and I love this, how Jesus not only cleanses us and changes our lives, but then he has a way to restore us and at times to present us back and to say, no, look, this is not the same man anymore. He's different now. He's changed. Like Saul of Tarsus, you know, they were all concerned and intimidated about interacting with him at first because of what he used to be like. And it took God to get involved in the minds of the people and say, look, this isn't the same man anymore. He's changed. He's cleansed. He's been transformed. And, and here the priest would present him back, verse 11 says, to the people. And those things were to be presented before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. 
And the priest shall take one male lamb and offer it as a trespass offering and the log of oil and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. We talked about that wave offering in prior chapters. Verse 13, and then he shall kill the lamb in the place where he kills the sin offering and the burnt offering in a holy place. For as the sin offering is the priest, so is the trespass offering it is most holy. So we see these different offerings were presented as a part of the process and the restoration of this cleansed leper back into regular society in the house of worship among the people. Chapter 14, verse 14 then reads, the priest shall take notice as he makes this offering, the trespass offering, he shall then take some of the blood from that trespass offering and the priest shall put it, notice, on the tip of the right ear who is to be cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. So this should ring a bell because remember, this is the exact same process that was done to who? Do you remember? To the priests, right? Back in chapters 8 and 9 when the priests were being ordained and put into service, God did this same thing. The, the, the blood was applied to the right ear, to the right thumb, uh, and then to the right foot. In a sense, you want to talk about amazing grace. We sang tonight about amazing grace. What, look what God is doing. God is taking someone who was the most despised, loathsome, from a human standpoint, despicable person among the society in Israel in that day that was isolated and quarantined and God's treating them like a priest. You want to talk about God taking you from the trash heap and bringing you to the place of incredible triumph. God says, from my perspective, he is on the same level as a priest now and God treats him with incredible grace. And not only does the Lord, again, forgive us, but the way in which the Lord then takes us from being, you know, beggars and just i mean the the condition that we're in and then to the place he elevates us to and the status he gives us in christ in our lives and here this same process is being done as what was done to the priests and again we just said the picture there of of the blood again your ear god saying your ear now it's now consecrated to me i want your ear what you hear to be attuned to my voice and to my heart and, and your thumb again what you do is redeemed with your hands the work of your hands and that you would be consecrated to the paths of god and then verse 15 says the priest shall take some of the log of oil pour it into the palm of his own left hand. So the idea is you picture your hand cupped and he's pouring now some of the oil into his hand. And then he shall dip his right finger into the oil in his left hand and sprinkle some of that oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. Again, seven in the Bible is always a number of completions. So a, a complete work, the idea here is thorough and complete. And the rest of the oil that is on his hand, the priest then shall put some of the on, on the tip of the right ear of him who's to be cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and the big toe of his right foot and on the blood of the trespass offering. So look, the blood speaks of how the ear was to be consecrated to God as the result of complete cleansing and forgiveness. God said, your ear now belongs to me. Your hands now belong to me. I purchased them with a price. And your feet, wherever I say I want you to go, you're my servant and I want you to walk in my paths. And now God does the same thing. On top of the blood, he applies the oil. And the oil, of course, is always a reminder and a symbolic picture of the Spirit of God. So now you see God giving the power to do those things so God says your ear belongs to me and now by the spirit's work in your life I'm going to supernaturally anoint you and empower you with the ability to have an ear to hear what the spirit would say I'm going to I'm going to quicken your ear by a work of the spirit to be discerning and attuned to hear the things of God by supernatural enablement God says your hands they belong to me but God says that's not good enough I'm going to anoint and empower the works of your hands so that you'll prosper supernaturally as my spirit and the oil of God's anointing is upon what you do and the places where you go. God says, I'm going to mark them out for you because they belong to me. But God says, I'm going to empower you to walk in my ways and to walk in my paths. And here we see God providing the power and the enablement for the things that we would do in a new life for him. And if that weren't enough, look at verse 18. It's almost here we have a picture of the baptism. 
or the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, after the ear and the hand and the foot's anointed, then the rest of the oil that was in his hand, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed. The idea is it was poured out. Some of the translations render it that way. The rest of the oil was then poured upon the man that was cleansed and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. So there again, God not holding back anyway. God says, not only do I want to empower you, but he says, I want to just completely pour out my spirit upon you. And all the rest of that was just poured over his head in a symbolic way. In verse 19, the priest shall offer then the sin offering and make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward, he shall then kill the burnt offering and the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be clean. Nurse, verse 521 now, if you notice, which runs down as far as verse 32, what God does here is makes a provision for the one who maybe was less economically capable of all of these offerings. You notice there's a number of different offerings that are described here. But what if somebody just doesn't have the resources? What if they're impoverished? What if they don't have the financial capability to have these type of animals for an offering? Well, again, God never excludes anyone. God works in ways where no one is excluded from worship. And in the same way, no one, listen, is excused from worship. And that's important to realize. God excludes no one. It doesn't matter what your condition or what your circumstances, God will never exclude you. God doesn't have certain classes alone that he deals with. And says, okay, well, uh, yeah, if you're of this class, then I'll embrace you. And you and, and, but if you're of this class, sorry, I don't deal with that class. God doesn't exclude anyone. He shows partiality to no man. But by the same token, please know as well that God never excuses anyone either because everyone is able to worship God, to serve God, to give unto God of their life in some way according to their own ability. And God sees that. And so here from verse 21 down through verse 32, notice, but if he is poor and he cannot afford it, in other words, he can't afford those more expensive animals. He doesn't even possess such things. He doesn't have the capability to acquire them. Then he shall take one male lamb as a trespass offering and it gives some restrictions. Verse 22, they could use the two turtle doves and the two young pigeons. And this is kind of repetitive. So come with me down to verse 30, uh, verse 30 itself. And he shall offer one of the turtle doves or young pigeons. Notice the repetition God's emphasizing. Such as he can afford, such as he is able to afford. The one is a sin offering and the other is a burnt offering with a grain offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him who is to be cleansed before the Lord. This is the law for the one who had a leprosur, again God says, who cannot afford the usual cleansing. So God says, again, I don't want to exclude anyone. God meets us all where we're at. He's gracious. He's loving. He meets men on every level of life and existence. But again, God makes very clear here, but there's also no excuse. And I bring this up because, you know, sometimes there is a tendency I think there's a tendency when someone maybe is in a place where maybe they can't afford to do certain things or they don't have maybe the same financial capabilities or maybe they're tight, maybe they're restricted. Listen, understand that, been there. I, I've, I've been the experience of you know having a mom at home, working two jobs, robbing Peter to pay Paul and then praying Paul won't tell Peter before what I robbed him. You know, I, I've been there, I understand that. But the reality is God says, but there is still always something that we can do. There's still something that we can give. Maybe we can't give a dollar, but we can give an hour. Maybe we can't, you know, contribute or do things the same way someone else can. But God says, Listen, but, but, but anyone can still worship me. Anyone can still offer sacrifices and can respond to me. And we are all still responsible to render to God the worship according to what we're able to do. And God's accepting with that. God's gracious with that. Again, remember, Jesus doesn't look at amounts. He looks at attitudes of the heart. Remember, when Jesus was watching in the temple treasury, the people were coming in that day, giving their offerings to the Lord. Jesus saw the widow go in and put her few fractions. Remember, the two mites, a fraction of a few cents. And prior to that, it said all types of wealthy people were dumping in large donations. Not that that was wrong either. 
But Jesus said, that woman right there just gave more than everybody else combined the whole day here in the temple. What? Because he said, well, everybody else, what they gave, they gave out of their excess. It didn't cost them anything. They could have probably gave double what they gave and it wouldn't even have phased them. So for them, it was just an easy... But he says, but that woman, in faith and sacrifice, she gave something that cost her personally. It mattered to her significantly. And Jesus saw that attitude of the heart and he was pleased with that. He was pleased with that. And so here, just a beautiful thing to see, again, the different spectrums and that God, again, lovingly, compassionately says he gave such as he is able to afford. This is the law of the one who has a leprosor who cannot afford the usual cleansing. And God accepted exactly what one was able to do. Now, verse 33 now begins to address what if there were infectious type things that existed within the households in that day in Israel. Now, again, this wouldn't necessarily be leprosy in the sense of what we think of of skin leprosy, infectious disease, but this no doubt would be dealing with things what we would you know, infer as uh, molds or you know, mildews or fungi, you know, these type of things that can arise within homes in some ways or on the walls that would be as well dangerous, unhygienic, and could cause infectious problems. So verse 33 says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, when you have come into the land of Canaan, which I give you as a possession, and notice, God's speaking of something that's 40 years out still. They still haven't even began the wilderness wandering yet, and the journey that they'll take briefly, that remember then, in unbelief, they won't enter into the promised land, and then they'll end up doing what? For 40 years wandering in the wilderness. They're not going to get into the land of the Canaan for 40 years as the result of what? Their own unbelief and their own disobedience and stumbling before God. But yet God is so confident of the work that he is going to finish and complete in their life. 40 years before they ever get there, God says, look at it right there in verse 34, when you've come into the land of Canaan. God says, you're going in eventually. Ultimately, you may take the long way around the barn and you may stumble a few times and have some problems and you know, drag your carcass through the wilderness and reap the consequences of your poor choices. But God says, I know what I'm going to do in your life. I know the plans and purposes I have for you and for your families. And ultimately, God says, this is my intention for your family, for the, for the people of Israel. God says, you're going to come into the land of Canaan, which I am going to give you. Why? Because God was the one that was committed to it. And see, God's way more committed to what he's doing in our lives than we are. We think it rests on our commitment and God says, are you kidding me? You really think I would rely on you accomplishing things ultimately? Again, the Bible says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And God here, four decades before it ever comes to pass, speaks of it confidently as if it already has happened. He says, when you come into the land, which I give you as a possession, and again, that might be a good verse to maybe email some of your uh, governing authorities nowadays who God gave the land to. It's pretty clear all throughout the Bible who God gave the land of Israel to, to the Jews, to the chosen people of Israel. God says, I'll give it to you as a possession. And he says, and in that time, when I put a leprous plague, again, we're talking about mold, mildew, funguses, things within the houses that they would be dwelling in, in the land of your possession. And he who owns the house comes and tells the priest saying, it seems to me uh, that there is some plague in the house. And maybe you've said that before. I've gotten emails from some of you like that before. You know, it seems to me there's kind of a plague going on in, in my house. And then a, there's a little further explanation afterwards. But you would go to the priest and say, something's just not right in my house. It seems there's something that's just sick and infectious. And there's, there's just seems like there's a plague that's just at work in my house. And would go to the priest and the priest shall then command, notice that they empty the house before the priest goes in to examine the plague and all that's in the house may not be made unclean and afterward the priest shall go in to examine the house and then the diagnosis is given to us here we'll read some of it without trying to put you to sleep verse 37 and he shall examine the plague and indeed if the plague is on the walls of the house within green streaks greenish or reddish which appear to be deep in the wall, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house 
and shut up the house for seven days. Close it down. Again, quarantine it. We don't, let's see what's going on in there. Keep everyone out so there's no further spreading of what may be very dangerous within. And the priest, verse 39, would then come again a week later and look. And indeed, if the plague has spread on the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take away the stones in which is the plague, and they shall cast them into an unclean place outside the city. And shall cause the house, verse 41, to be scraped inside and all around. And the dusk that they scrape off, they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. And they shall take other stones and put them back in replacement of those stones. And he shall take other mortar and plaster over the house. So the idea is a process of removing what's destructive and infectious and restoring it with what is healthy uh, and safe in the home for hygienic and sanitary reasons. Verse 43, now if the plague comes back and breaks out in the house, so even after efforts to rid the house of this plague, it returns once again and comes back. After he's taken away the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall come out and look, and indeed the plague has spread in the house. It's an active leprosy in the house and is therefore unclean. So it's a spreading infectious, active mold or mildew, something that's infectious and unhealthy for those dwelling within. And he shall break down the house, if that's the case, notice, its stones, its timber, and all the plaster. He shall carry them outside the city to an unclean place. And moreover, he who goes into the house while it is shut up shall be unclean till evening. He who lies in the house shall have to wash his clothes, and who eats in the house shall wash his clothes. But if the priest comes in and examines it, and indeed the opposite, the plague is not spread, in the house after it had been plastered and restored, then the priest can pronounce the house clean because the plague has been healed. In other words, it wasn't a spreading active uh, mildew or fungi or mold within the walls there that he found. It was something that was able to be resolved with a little bit of cleansing within the house. Now, you know, as, as we look at these things, we're thinking, what in the world? If you want to take that and be stressed out your whole life long regarding what's happening behind your walls and all those things, you, you can do that. But no doubt as we look at this, I think it's a great reminder that God is not only concerned about what may be infectious and unhealthy in our own personal lives, but also what may be infectious and unhealthy and plaguing our households and what exists within our homes. Because truth be told, listen, there are lots of things that can begin to creep into our homes through television and social media and pressures and influences of this world and habits and those even that are dwelling within our home that can introduce things into our households that are unhealthy, that are plaguing our homes, that are destroying our homes, ultimately to the place where, notice, if things came bad enough, they literally had to destroy and tear down the whole house. But the whole purpose of this was if you sensed something was unhealthy in the home, what did you do? Did you run and tell everybody, hey, I think there's a plague in my house? No, you went and told the high priest and you put it into his hands and you asked him to examine it and to begin to deal with it. And you know what? That's great wisdom for us because if there's something plaguing your home, whether it's something with issue with one of your children or a marital situation or things that are in your house that you know are sick and unhealthy and things that are plaguing your home, your marriage situation. Listen, first order of business is you need to go talk to the high priest. You need to go talk to Jesus about it and say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but th this seems to be plaguing our home. This seems to be defiling our home. And, and Lord, I, I need you to examine this and, and I need you to deal with this. And then whatever he says to do, if he says, look, okay, well, this is what you need to do. You need to get that and get it out of your home. And you need to deal with it radically. Well, Lord, th that's going to kind of stir up a, a dust cloud. I mean, if you're taking down stones out of a wall and scraping things, that's, that's a little messy. That's a little bit, you know, a little bit of uncomfortable activity. And you know what? Sometimes when there's a need for a little bit of house cleaning, that's just a part of the process. 
And you can just gradually let something that plagues your home just slowly creep in and destroy and corrupt your home and everyone in it. Or you can have the spiritual fortitude to go talk to Jesus and get serious about it and say, Lord, I I think there's a need for a little house cleaning. And so, Lord, begin with me and Lord, whatever that involves, Lord, these things that I don't, they can't be in our home. They're unhealthy. And sometimes I think for all of us, we need to be honest when we sense these things and we see them and it happens in all of our home lives. Let's be very honest because there's constantly things that are bombarding and seeking to find their way into the walls and through the doors of our houses. And again, we live in a culture where sin is no longer just passive, man. It's aggressive. It's aggressive. And whether you want it or not, or you're trying to bring it in, it's going to find its way to try and creep into your home. And we need to be on guard against those things, recognize them, and at times, again, do a little house cleaning and let Jesus, our great high priest, direct us and help us in the process, hard as it may be. Well, verse 49 then talks about, again, the same cleansing process as when the leper was cleansed. You notice taking the two birds and the cedar wood and the scarlet Verse 54, let's just finish up the chapter here. It says, and this is the law for any leprous sore and scale for the leprosy of a garment or of a house for the swelling and the scab and a bright spot to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. And this is the law of leprosy. Now, chapter 15, we're going to try and breeze our way through this. And trust me, you'll be thankful that that's why we're going to do this. If you read ahead, chapter 15 is a chapter that deals with natural and abnormal discharges from the body. And it seems very specifically regarding the sexual and reproductive organs that that is where these discharges are coming from. Again, natural discharges as well as abnormal discharges from the male as well as natural and abnormal discharges from the female. And again, talking about bodily fluids and how to handle them, again, for hygiene and sanitation and what makes a person ceremonially unclean and so forth. And, you know, we look at these things in the Bible and <laughs> I know I do anyway. I have to study it all day long. You guys just get to listen for a few minutes and you're thinking, what in the world? Do we got to look at this for Well, let me just say this by way of a bird's eye perspective. You want to talk about an indication in scripture that makes it very clear to us that there is no area and no aspect of our entire lives that God is not interested in. I mean, God's talking about you know, ulcers and boils and sanitation and how to handle their pots and their pans. And, and now he's talking about bodily fluids and how to address this and deal with that. And he's, I mean, one by one here going through these things that deal with every issue and aspect of everyday life here. And I think it's just a tremendous reminder that God does care about every area of life. Because sometimes we think there are certain things that God cares about and then there are other things that you know, I shouldn't trouble God with. I mean, I want, I want to get this little boil. I want to pray about this little boil on my arm. I mean, there are people who are being boiled, you know, in cauldrons for their faith in Jesus Christ. Why would I talk to God about my little condition? Listen, because God cares. God created your body and God is concerned with every area and every aspect of your life. Don't think that there is anything in your life that God's not interested in because evidently he is. He's very, very interested and very concerned regarding every aspect of your life. Well, uh, let's jump into this together. He begins chapter 15 by saying, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. So the first thing he's going to talk about is an abnormal discharge. And again, because of the context of the chapter as a whole, there are some who try and say, well, this could refer to any discharge, you know, you know, a runny nose, diarrhea, those kind of things. Not that we want to talk about those things either, I'm sure. But it's evident that God, from the context of the chapter as a whole, is probably speaking about issues of the reproductive and sexual organs because that seems to be the context of the whole chapter. So he's speaking here of probably what is an abnormal discharge. It's probably a reference here to what we might call STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. It's very likely he's describing gonorrhea here. Again, remember, they came from Egypt where they'd been 400 years. The Egyptians were famous for promiscuity. 
I mean, they had all kinds of perverse sexual practices, polygamy, bestiality. I mean, they were involved in gross, despicable practices that would generate all types of horrendous type diseases and issues within the body. So God here says, when a man has this discharge, an abnormal discharge... He shall be in his uncleanness in regard to this discharge, whether his body, notice, runs with the discharge, so that as if something is actually leaking or discharging from his body, or if his body has been stopped up by the discharge, it is his uncleanness. And every bed is unclean on which he who has the discharge lies, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. So the idea, again, is for hygienic purposes, sanitation, so that there would not be the spread of what is infectious, especially if it's an STD or gonorrhea, one of these type things that would be contagious through bodily fluids. The God is exercising caution. That person was unclean and anything they sat on or laid on was therefore infectious. Verse 5, and whoever touches his bed, that is the one who has this discharge, shall wash his clothes and bathe in water. And be unclean until evening. And you'll see this, unclean until evening. Why till evening? Well, because to the Jew, remember, their day began at evening. It was evening and then it was morning the first day. We measure days starting in the morning, ending in the evening. On the Jewish mindset, they do the exact opposite. The first three stars that are evident, the day begins at evening. That's the beginning of a new day. So that's why we're seeing this until evening, the beginning of a new day. Verse 6, he who sits on anything on which he who has a discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean. He who touches the body of him who has the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And if he who has a discharge spits, again, the, the contagiousness of saliva, sneezing or fluid from the mouth of him is unclean he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening so again using sanitary precaution because understanding god that bodily fluid is the spread of infection and that which we could contaminate another person again we're watching the outbreak of ebola and these things being trying to you know rework again today even in a situation like this the precaution that was to be used god said if you touched or came into contact that anything that person came into contact with again washing with water bathing and using precaution around being around other people if you touch the body of someone making sure that you didn't have any contact with bodily fluids again we we look at how people practice today in these areas to use precaution you know years ago when i uh, was pastoring the church in york as a way to make some additional income for our family i actually worked for a funeral home and we used to go out and pick up dead bodies when people would pass away and listen uh we always had on gloves uh, because fluids emitted and discharged from the body and even the skin itself at times there was lots of fluid underneath and you did not want to come into contact with that because you did not know what potentially could happen. So sanitation, hygiene, God's saying be careful. And again, what is God emphasizing? Washing with water so that you're not contaminated by an infection person. Let's bring that over spiritually for a minute. There are people when they are infectious with sin and they're involved in things that are unhealthy that, listen, it's unavoidable. You're going to come into contact with people in the world. You're going to work with infectious, contaminated people who don't know Jesus Christ. You're going to live with potentially infectious, contaminated people. How do you keep yourself from being infected by their condition and it de causing deterioration and defilement in you? How? By washing in the water of the word of God, continuously letting God's word wash over you to renew your mind, to keep your heart in the right place so that you would be careful that you're not infected by their condition. Verse 9, then it begins to speak about what they sat on, whether it was the saddle or other things. Those things were unclean. Uh, verse 11, whoever, uh, the one who has the discharge touches his hands had to be rinsed in water and wash his clothes and bathe in water to be clean until evening. And the vessel of earth, if he touched an earthen vessel uh, that had the, and he had a discharge, that was to be broken because it was porous. It could sink into the pores and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. Again, God wanting to protect 
from the transmission of defiling influences. When he who has the discharge, verse 13, is cleansed of his discharge, he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes, bathe in running water, and then he shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take for himself two turtle doves, two young pigeons, and come before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall offer them, the one who has a sin offering, and the other then as a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord because of his discharge. So verses 13 to 15 describe if a person then recovered. If they were healed miraculously or they recovered somehow, again, God gave protocol to wisely, slowly, but yet uh, ultimately put them back into a place where they were in a clean condition. They were no longer ceremonially unclean. They could then gather again with the people. There was sin and burnt offerings that were offered as a part of the process there as they were then put back into the fellowship of God's people. So verses 1 to 15 deal with abnormal discharges from the body of a man. Verse 16 through 18 deal with normal or natural discharges. Verse 16 says, If any man has an emission of semen, then he shall wash all his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And any garment or any leather on which there is semen, it shall be washed with water and unclean until evening. And also when a woman lies with a man, the idea is sexual intercourse, and no doubt God's speaking of the marital experience here, because this is a clean thing. The person here is not unclean morally, just ceremonially. When a woman lies with a man and there is an emission of semen, the natural emission of semen as the result of the sexual act, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. So again, notice here in verses 16 to 18, there is no mention of a sin offering. It's not necessary because this is a normal, a normal bodily discharge. It's not something that's abnormal. There's no sinful connotation as a result of why this is happening here. Take notice again that as a result of this, it says if a man and a woman are sexually intimate, again, a husband and a wife and marital relations, and there's the emission of semen, God asked for hygiene and sanitation. They were to wash but again, this is not saying that sexual intercourse within a marriage relationship is somehow sinful or unclean. This is not an issue of moral uncleanness or sinful uncleanness, only ceremonial uncleanness that would last for a matter of a few hours as God was providing hygienic and sanitary practices. And again, I bring that up because, again, the Bible's very clear. God gave the gift of sexual experience to the husband and a wife. 1 Corinthians 7 says a husband and wife are not to defraud one another of such things. It is a clean, healthy, normal experience that is supposed to be a part of the marriage relationship here. God's just giving protocol for sanitation. And I point that out because, unfortunately, because at times... Maybe we've had abnormal experiences prior to coming to Christ. Sometimes we carry over wrong ideas about the sexual experience and feel like in marriage the sexual experience is dirty or it's inappropriate. And listen, that is the furthest thing from the truth. Sex is a gift from God. It's something that's designed for procreation and pleasure for the husband and wife. And there's no mention of moral uncleanness here. It was just ceremonial uncleanness and a need for sanitation for the husband and a wife to value what God had given to them. And probably part of it, that ceremonial uncleanness, was to remind them that potentially through that act, they could have then introduced another sinner into the world. So God asked them to be ceremonially unclean for the next few hours until the next day. Verse 19 then says, If a woman has a discharge, and the discharge from her body is blood. So this is speaking of her menstruation, the monthly menstrual cycle. She shall be set apart for seven days. And whoever touches her, I'm just going to read these, shall be unclean until evening. Verse 20. <laughs> everything, everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. And everything she sits on shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches anything that was sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And if anything is on her bed or anything on which she sits when touches it shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her at all, 
so that her impurity is on him. So again, if they have sexual relations and it's the onset of the menstruation cycle, then also he shall be unclean for the seven days or the week during the menstruation cycle as well. So again, here this speaks of a normal healthy discharge from the woman the the monthly menstrual cycle that god created as a part uh, of the process of being able to be fertile and to procreate verse 25 now through the remainder of the chapter deals with an abnormal discharge from a woman's body if she has a discharge of blood for many days other than that, at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond the usual time of her impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. And every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as a bed of impurity. And whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her impurity. And whoever touches any of those things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall count for herself seven days. Again, this is speaking of there is a healing if God touches her after she's having this condition, again, whether it's a chronic bleeding and hemorrhaging uh, from the area of her menstruation or some other type of a condition that's causing a flow or a discharge, then verse 29, on the eighth day, she'll take for herself two turtle doves and young pigeons and bring them to the priest of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for the discharge of her uncleanness. Now, again, we look at these things and we think, man, how, how do I take that and piece it together? And I'll be quite honest. You know, I've looked at Bible commentaries and heard others teach this passage and try and find you know, applications throughout it. And I think you need to be careful at times not trying to over-torture the Scripture for an application, understanding, first of all, that in that ancient culture, these were critical things for hygiene and sanitation. And if anything, God lays these things as a foundation because I would encourage you, read Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8. There you find a story of Jesus dealing with a woman who has what? An issue of blood. And for 12 years, she has this issue of blood where she had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And as you read and understand what the Old Testament said in regards to someone in that condition, all of a sudden it begins to shed new light on why she's acting and responding the way she is. She comes to Jesus working her way through that crowd saying, if I can just touch him, I'll be made clean. And then after she touches Jesus and she's healed... And she comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, someone touched me. It says that she comes to Jesus trembling, and she's terrified. Why is she terrified? Because she realizes she just defiled and made everybody in that crowd ceremony unclean. And more than that, she's thinking, I just made the master unclean. I just defiled him. Even though I was healed, I just defiled him and made him ceremonially unclean. And she's probably thinking... Is he going to take it back now? Somehow did I defile him and did I upset him? And again, as we understand these passages from the Old Testament and manage to work our way through them and come to a greater understanding of how these things worked out in ancient Israel, all of a sudden when you read the Gospels, things come into light. All of a sudden when you read the Gospels and things about how Jesus dealt with lepers, things begin to pop off the page with like, oh, I understand why that person's acting like I understand why Jesus is saying the things that he's saying because you're able to take the context of the Old Testament and use it to help you understand the New Testament to have a greater understanding of those things.